and welcome to the Race Formula E podcast, where today we'll be looking back at rounds three and four of the ABB FIA Formula E World Championship, which took place on the streets of Rome. As is often the case with Formula E, the weekend gave us a little bit of everything, from a bizarre shunt in free practice, some frankly baffling decisions to start the races behind the safety car, despite there being barely a drop of water on the track, to a host of penalties handed out for some crude driving. Joining me, Andrew Vanderberg, to discuss all of this and a lot more is our Formula E correspondent, Sam Smith. But before we start, Sam, your return to the paddock didn't quite go as anticipated. No, it didn't. I think it's the equivalent of stalling on the grid and not having anyone to push start you. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, let's say a, a well-known uh, family pharmacy, high street pharmacy store, uh, scuppered my plans to be in Rome and it became a bit of a knock-on domino effect. So uh, I was uh, rendered hors de combat for, for the weekend, but I'll be uh, I'll be back for Valencia for sure. Yeah, whether well, we can just keep this running gag of how long it's been since you've been in the paddock going for a little while longer. So, you know, it's not all bad. But let's talk a little bit about Rome. Obviously, we've waxed lyrical on this show before about the original Rome track, but this um, new layout, pretty good as well. I thought it was a cracking circuit, yeah. I mean, it, it looked tremendously exciting on TV. The elevation changes make it, don't they? I mean, it was always a great layout anyway, and they seemed to make it better. It was a bit longer. The the stretch uphill from turns four to turn seven was ultra spectacular. T- too narrow, which we'll come on to later, I'm sure, but a huge challenge for the drivers. And, of course, the, 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 the wet element of the weekend uh, added to that. But overall, I thought it looked brilliant. You know, it could have done with one of those uh, infamous jumps that we, we enjoyed in 2018 and 2019. But, you know, we're, 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 we're picking at it now. It was it was a better track I thought than the original which is which is saying something and I'll I'll keep the Montjuï Park uh, theme going because I think it really is Formula E's Montjuï Park challenge. Quite a few random different track surface changes though that we saw and especially in those wet conditions that you mentioned leading to drivers having to sort of think on their feet using all different parts of the track to work out where the grip was. Yeah and I think that's part and parcel and always should be part and parcel of Formula E. It's it's all it's it's the challenge of racing on city streets, genuine city streets. You know, Diria was uh, re-tarmacked, and it, it's it's essentially a a pop up track for street track for Formula E. This is the real deal. This is in the in the Lazio municipality of the Eternal City, and it's got it's got cracks in the track. It's got different um, asphalts. It has the the painted lines all over the circuit. You know, it had that uh, manhole cover, which we'll come on to, which caused Stoffel van Dorn some grief in Saturday's race. So loads of vehicle dynamic challenges to throw into all the usual uh, strategy uh, aspects that, that Formula E drivers and teams have to grapple with. So let's kick off with with race one. Um, I don't have the luxury of being able to watch all the sessions, but I, I logged on just in time to see one of the more bizarre incidents I think I've seen in, in Formula E history, and that was Oliver Turvey wiping out the, the back third or quarter of the grid while they were waiting to do practice starts. Can you just talk us through a little bit about what happened and has, has Oliver offered the, a reasonable explanation for what happened there? Well, no, not really. I mean, it was it was a bit of a hodgepodge of different things. I mean, ultimately, Oliver made a, a, a dreadful error or oversight. Uh, all started off with a bang on Saturday morning. What happens is, at the end of the session, they have a practice start. 
time, allocated time, where all the grid can practice their starts. In Rome, it's the start and the finish is offset. So the finish was down the hill towards turn three and the start line was between that turn four and turn seven section we mentioned, which is uphill, narrow and blind. Um, that was one of the aspects of the incident. What happened was Turvey came around and several cars, I think among them Alex Lynn, Mortara, uh, Nato and Vern and Dennis had collected, but obviously they have to be staggered. So the curving nature of it made that just as Turvey came up the hill, I think uh, the Venturi was parked on the left and he missed that, but Dennis was on the right. He clipped Vern on the way through uh, and at an unabated speed hit the, the back of Jake Dennis's car and then um, slithered to a halt just behind Sebastian Buemi. We got some really spectacular pictures from the back of Buemi's Nissan. Um, so Turvey, initially it was thought that maybe there were some communications issues, but but there weren't. I, I checked with some people I know um, at, at, at um, Magneti Morelli who do uh, the communications for the circuit in, in conjunction with MLTC. The, the kinked nature of that area combined with amazingly apparently no yellow flags to tell drivers that there was um, stationary cars on the track at that time and the fact that Oliver obviously had forgotten and this subsequently said that he had uh, forgotten that there were practice starts all contributed to this accident which you know was was a was quite a shocking shunt I mean Vern was was very shocked you know he, he got out of his car um, did a little bit of his his sort of Mansell um, Mansell thing that he that he does, but no, I mean it was a shock for him, and it could have been very unpleasant. And thankfully, main thing is everyone got away with it, uh, but it meant that there were three significantly damaged cars. Uh, yeah, it was it was a shocker, and and on all the more so because it was Oliver Turvey, somebody who is as astute as they come, isn't he? I mean, he, he doesn't make mistakes, but um, I, I can't remember I can't remember him making any particularly of note and obviously this one is, is is a significant one yeah i think you're right i mean the fact it was him um is what made it even more um, bizarre but uh, there we go and obviously it had a pretty large large knock-on effect for him because he wasn't able to take part in that first race so let's crack on with uh with that first race okay there's there was a there had been some rain there was maybe a little bit of water still hanging in the air but do you, did you feel that there was a genuine need to start that race under a safety car initially no um was of the opinion that it wasn't wet enough for a for a, a rolling start a safety car start but actually subsequently i think that there was some merit in potentially doing that on saturday um it, it was it was wet and actually if you look down beyond the grid towards turn seven it, it was it was you know it was not fully wet but it was wet enough and I think from a standing start, particularly on that configuration of start line with the kink, with the blind rise, and I, I think part of it, I think part of the decision must have been affected by what had happened in that shunt with Turvey. I imagine that that came into it because, as as Alexander Sims uh, told me last night, you know, imagine if there'd have been a, a drive shaft failure off the grid, the narrowness of the track there. It was just asking for a a big shunt, and I don't think anyone needed another shunt um, a few hours on from what happened earlier with Turvey's uh, accident. So probably discretion just about merited it then. However, 
we'll come to it a bit later for for Sunday. It was a, in my opinion, a, an entirely different matter on the Sunday. If it's about what if people should have have a drive shaft failure or whatever, then the, the the weather doesn't really come into it. But yeah, let's let, let's revisit that when we start talking about race two in a little bit. Now they hadn't even got around the first lap, and we'd had the first major incident, and that was Andre Lotterer sort of dive bombing inside of Stoffel Van Dorn, and both of them ending up in the barrier. Um, ultimately, uh, Lotterer ended up getting a penalty for that. But how did you see it? I mean, from my point of view, we'd seen as as we would see on the later races that the Mercedes and Van Dorns in particular had a healthy pace advantage would he not been better advised to realize you you can't win the race on the first lap but you can certainly lose it yeah absolutely I think uh, I think even if you ask Stoffel now he, he'd probably look at that view it perhaps a little differently um you know at first it looked like a slam dunk for Lotterer didn't it you know he, he sort of chanced his arm a bit there and and made the contact forced Van Dorn down the down the escape but you yeah, have the first racing lap of uh, a 45 minute plus one lap in mixed conditions uh you know why take uh chancy risks like that I stewards blame Lotterer five second penalty but Honestly, I would view that entirely as a as a racing incident. I think that's actually the very nature of a racing incident, isn't it? Somebody behind going for a going for a gap, not quite making it, some contact. I I would say that is the very definition of a racing accident. And I think Lotterer actually was probably a little bit unlucky to to get that penalty. Well, I think that's more symptomatic of where we are now, where th- there appears to need to be blame apportioned and this isn't just in motor racing this is just in general you know the gray areas the nuances those you know gaps in the pavement or whether there doesn't there seems to be no tolerance of that now and everything has to be banged to rights on one side or the other and I don't I don't think you'd necessarily get the best outcomes as a result of that but um never mind all, all of that left Oliver Rowland uh and his Nissan in a pretty comfortable lead and he and he uh, initially at least appeared to be pretty well set and then we get this information over the uh, over the um, intercoms that uh, he's been penalized for overboosting um even though I worked informally for 4 years I never quite got my head around <clears throat> why that a- appears to happen um and why it's um so harshly penalized so can you for the for the listeners can you just explain a little bit about what it is and, and how it happens yeah, it's it's quite a complex one, but I'll, I'll try and I'll try and give it some uh, some clarity if I can. So we saw several drivers get penalties for this, and and it, essentially how it happens is that the, the bumpier tracks are more difficult to control the the power parameters which are set by the rules. So when you get RPM spikes and a, and a host of I, I suppose associated oscillations within the powertrain, these can take place over uh, over over bumps so the bumpier the track the more likely that you're going to have a spike in the power used and even minutely if that happens there's an alarm system that triggers a warning to the FIA via via sensors within the control limitations there are there are known colloquially what are known as illegal folders or buckets so as an example most teams will occasionally get a spike but if you fill the bucket or the folder with so many spikes going over the tolerance, when you go over the bumps, you'll get pinged. So that's what happened with Roland. That's what happened with the Dragons in particular. I mean, I lost track of how many Sete Camera got over the weekend. So the powertrain oscillations, it's inevitable on a bumpy street track everywhere. 
in fact. But when it's extenuated with mega bumps like we saw in Rome, uh, it, it accidentally exceeds the allowable um, folder or bucket value. So that's why we saw the penalties dished out. I mean, you know, it's it's a it, it it's it's a fact of nature, isn't it? Just the way that former e circuits are are um, are built and how they're configured and the unique nature of EV powertrains um, running on them. So, um, but the teams know about it, and uh, but some still get caught out, and that's why we see these these uh, these penalties applied. It was harsh on Roland, who um, you know, had good pace in that car and uh, fought back reasonably well. But all, all of that um, left us with this fight at the, at the front and this sort of tactic where the the because all the cars were running so closely together, I mean, possibly the most closely packed Formula E race to date, the penalty for taking um, the uh, <clears throat> attack, the penalty for taking attack mode um, meant you would lose three, maybe four places. So it ultimately became a strategic call on when to mitigate the loss of that because, as you mentioned before, the, the track was so narrow that overtaking was, was really hard. Is, is this the first time that that's really ended up being a, the strategic call? Is When's the best, least worst time to use attack mode? Yeah, I mean, it, it's always factored into the strategies, of course, but you're right, it was... Um, it was even trickier in Rome. The the attack mode, the attack transponders were positioned on the outside of the uh, obelisk, uh, Marconi obelisk hairpin, which was this quite quick uh, left hand hairpin. But it was it was interesting to see how that race panned out because what I think was happening in both races, in fact, on Saturday and Sunday, was that at stages whoever was leading the race was trying to manage it because they were very much on the cusp of how many laps they were going to do during within the 45 minute plus final lap um of the of the epre so you've got that there's a lot of pliability in in the strategies even before they start the race because of the variables and the unknowns yes kilowatts are, are kilowatt hours are taken off uh, if there are significant um, safety car and full course yellow periods, but still, that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a big window in the strategies of of how things happen. So the pace becomes a kind of a you know a, a bit of a stretched elastic band, and and all of a sudden it it, it tends to um, it tends to expand and contract during moments of the race. So it, really challenging for the engineers, but. In terms of the attack modes, um, it was it was interesting to see how things played out because, yes, you know you have to take them, and we we know that if you don't, you you, you get penalised as as some did in Diria and subsequently in, in race two, on Sunday as well. So there's, there's so many different things for for the drivers and the and the teams to try and put into that strategy for the race overall. And I thought it was fascinating to watching it in, in both races, but I did wonder whether, you know, for the the less hardcore fan, whether they might struggle to sort of comprehend exactly what was going on, why these cars were moving out and, and dropping positions or whatever. I just, yeah, it's a it's a difficult one because um, while it's great, you see, you know, the, the the having the additional energy and being able to um, at, attack more. I think yeah, it, it just. Some of it just didn't look quite right for a neutral who was maybe watching a race for the first time. Yeah, I I know what you mean. Obviously, they have the the halo which flashes, but I think potentially they need to do 
something a little more visual. Um, yeah, the, the graphics are, are pretty good, but you know you've only got one pair of eyes, haven't you? I mean, even for the for the viewers, it's hard to comprehend everything that goes on in a Formula E race because there's so much happening. I mean, Formula One we have DRS, which is a simple process um and, and visually you see the wing go down and it's it's on the graphics but it's ubiquitous isn't it whereas the attack mode is i i feel is much more strategic and i think probably for the purist is more palatable but you're right if you're if you're a detached observer or if you're a new fan coming in it needs a, a, a more thorough explanation i think the uh, the attack mode and um you know we've got we've still got a season left next season of gen 2 racing so i wouldn't be surprised if there there could be some tweaks to the sporting format and a bit of a refresh of an update of of that whole process uh, so yeah stay tuned for for what might come across in the next few months now up front in the race at uh, at this point we saw lucas de grassi make a move for the lead and seemed to be relatively comfortable in in front it was a return to old for lucas who obviously didn't win a race last season for the first time in formula e yeah it's nearly 2 years remarkably since Degrassi last won a race. I mean, Berlin, May 2019 was his last victory. And, uh, you know, boy, doesn't he know it. Um, he's hungry for a win and he's got a quick car. The the, the all-new in-house built powertrain that Audi have done is, is good. You know, they have got a potential race-winning package there. And Degrassi was really unfortunate on Saturday. He had a he had a great battle with Verne. Yep, it got a bit elbows out, a bit brawny, which... Yeah, it's it's Lucas Degrassi, isn't it? I mean, you, you're going to get that as part and parcel of of how he conducts races. He made a he made a nice move on Verne into turn four. I, I think actually Jean Eric let him go slightly, so it wasn't quite as good as it it did look there. And then just a, a lap or so later, he had the suspected drive shaft incident, uh, which had a knock on, which we'll we'll come on to shortly. But they've got a quick car there, Audi, and unfortunately, you know, they they didn't quite get what they wanted from those races or perhaps uh, deserved. So, uh, But I'm sure it's going to come for them. Yeah, as you mentioned, as as Lucas was sort of coasted along with that um, suspected drive shaft failure, <clears throat> the narrowness of the cr- track really came into play. And uh, we saw Van Dorn crashed, and, uh, unfortunately taken out his teammate Nick De Vries and, and ultimately led to the race finishing uh, under the safety car. At the time, it looked as though he'd just been um distracted by a bump as he went offline but it appears that there was a lot more to it than that yeah it was it was quite hard to understand exactly what happened because the camera kind of cut it was just past the camera so you kind of got two two different shots and you didn't quite see the moment where van dorn lost it but obviously lucas had had his suspected drive shaft issue pulled over to the left but as again so narrow up there and you know it's kind of like sod's law isn't it most of the incidents of the weekend happened in that area and this one was just one of those things with with the dry shaft going on the Audi I think what happened or what certainly what um Ian James told me was that Van Dorn went offline to give extra room because of the slowing Audi and just at one of the um sort of uh, lips on the change of asphalt there is a a manhole cover which is slightly raised in it has a lip on it and i think when van dorn hit that it raised the wheels off the ground and when they landed and the the, the power was still applied it shot him off uh and he collected you know again sod's law his teammate and they both sort of skittled along the walls and and into retirement so super unfortunate for mercedes 
Um, and it, it was messy. It ultimately ended ended the race under under safety car. Just just one of those unfortunate things where many circumstances combine, uh, and and we lost we lost three cars because of it. Just before that incident had taken place, we'd seen uh, the reigning champion Antonio Felix da Costa pulling off uh, for retirement. Not a great weekend for the defending champ there. It wasn't actually. It was a tough one for him. I mean, he, he drove really well in in both races. The first one, he had pretty innocuous touch with Rene Ras Saudi by all accounts, and uh, but it, it got a puncture and, and took the tire off the rim, and there was too much damage, and he had to park it. Um, so it was a tough start to the weekend for him, and he, he he lost a bit of momentum with with the new DS. Don't forget they had the new powertrain, the DS Etense FE twenty one, which has been in gestation for the last 18 months, would you believe it? They started testing it, I think, last June or, or July time. Uh, but because of the supply chain, some of the supply chain issues brought about by the pandemic, they have delayed that and, and got it homologated in the slot two window. So it was its debut. It's a quick car, but DaCosta uh, did make a mistake in qualifying on Saturday. So we're starting way back on the grid and, and that ultimately compromised him. But he you know, he was looking very good for some hard earned points until that slight contact with uh, rest. So all that chaos at the end ultimately meant that it was John Eric Verne that won, as you say, given the new DS Chichita a win on its debut. And we also had a pair of Jaguars on the podium for the first time since the Autopolis World Sports Car Championship round in nineteen ninety one. Do you know who the drivers were that day? I do. <laughs> I thought you might. You're talking to me, V to B. I'm I'm a sad, sad man. Um, well, I know that Schumacher and Venlinger won it. Uh, yeah. Derek Warwick was second in the XJR14 ground to air missile, <laughs> one of the greatest cars ever <laughs> built in my book. Uh, and I, th- it, so it was either so third would have been definitely Teo Fabi. Yeah, uh, but I don't know if he had a teammate. If he had a teammate, it would have been either Brabs or... No, it's Brabs, I think. Was it? Yeah. Okay, so maybe David Brabham was with Farby, but Warwick did it on his own, um, you know. Yes, as Derek Warwick did things on his own, didn't he? I mean, he was, you know, durability defined in a human. But um, i tell you what else. So I reckon looking... I had a quick look at the results earlier. I reckon that uh, there is one driver on that grid at Autopolis in 91, which, by the way, was that the same as the TI circuit? Or was one of those white elephant tracks in sort of the mountains of Japan, wasn't it? Was I think TI was Aida, where they had ah. the Pacific Grand Prix. Okay, okay. So there was yeah. one, one driver on that grid who is still active. You know, I'll, I'll just tell you because no one will ever get it. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. It was Oiser in a, in a low is he, is he still doing like the uh, Benelux... Castrol GT couples, I yeah, mean. something like that. Coroizo, who's probably about seventy-eight now, is still <laughs> is still racing, and he was partnered with uh, Charles Volsman, um, a fellow fellow Dutchman who used to uh, used to have uh, very intricate ways of paying for his motor racing, I do believe. But that's one for another day, V to be definitely. Yeah. Also, his son was um, Lewis Hamilton's teammate in Manor uh, when they, when he in his first season in Indeed. the RF three. So there you go. How many tangents can we go on in one? Well, a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's move on to race two. Um, fantastic qualifying performance from Norman Nato. Probably the driver that most people who were casual fans might know least about. But 
um, putting it on the front row alongside Nick Cassidy, who's you know we've interviewed on this podcast and much more of a, a sort of favoured uh, up and coming rising star. Yeah, NATO, NATO. I don't know. I call him Normski, but he did uh, he did he did a great job actually. In I mean, he got the he got the best of the drying conditions. He was in the right time the right place but he still did an excellent job actually and, and, and a great front row start for him a uh, bit of a morale boost he, I mean you know he's, he's been the quiet man of Formula E so far but to top the qualifying session and get his first point in the championship is pretty significant for him I think he's gone about Formula E in, in a really smart way actually slightly cautious but just getting the miles in finishing the races great attitude He'll probably need to start getting his elbows out a bit more in races as the season progresses. But yeah, I thought he was a a real star on Sunday, and um, it, it, his lap in qualifying was was sublime. We alluded to it earlier on. Again, the race started under the safety car. This time, it didn't appear that there was any water on the track at all. There wasn't the slightest, you know, sign of a puddle. Certainly, no rooster tails coming off the back of the car. Was what was the reasoning behind this decision, or is it really that? The layout of that circuit just isn't conducive to a standing start. Well, you've got you've got to wonder, haven't you? Jean Vern and Sam Bird were very critical of the facts of the placement and location of the start straight. Vern equated it to a sort of karting track part of the track, just narrow, just super narrow. I don't think particularly conducive to a start. It had it had a, a blind crest in the hill, the grid curled around it. I mean, you know. It's not got much going for it, let's face it, in terms of having a, a 24-car grid on it. So, you know, we don't know if that was a part of the, the thinking, but officially the reason was that there was um, that there were patches of, of damp on the track. Now, you know, I talked earlier, discretion was probably the best, uh, better part of valour for Saturday. But for Sunday, certainly, you know, this, this is a world championship. It's got world-class drivers in it. It's not a junior formula full of rich kids or pay drivers. This is very much my personal opinion, but it should have 100% been a standing start on Sunday if we take the reason for it being the weather. There was barely a patch of uh, what you'd call proper damp asphalt. Uh, yes, the trees overhang there and you get a bit, you know, you get variations, but let's uh you know let's let's trust the drivers i mean you know th- these are world class drivers i don't think there is a strength in depth i think formery is one of the the, the 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 toughest and 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 best fields of drivers in the world i don't think you really get much better i think it's debatable about formula 1 and and, and indycar or whatever but it's certainly up there in that bracket so if if drivers... there are no bad drivers on the grid, are there? No. I mean, they're they're all proven winners at whatever level they've raced at before. Exactly. So you have to presume that the narrowness um, and the location of the start finish straight, with that dip and the blind crest going into a ninety left, that they, they just didn't fancy unleashing twenty four cars into into that scenario really, because weather wise, uh, you, you know, there were there was just. Uh, I don't think there was a particular justification for having a, a rolling start there. But uh, that again, like I say, that's just my opinion. We've often remarked how one of our favourite drivers, Robin Frines, is also one of the more laid back. A um, little bit too laid back on that start? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually struggled to see exactly what happened. But we, we think what hap- what did occur was that he, Frines held back. There was there was some games going on, you know, a lap or two behind a, a safety car at the start because the, the top, the clock starts ticking down. So 
it's an opportunity for you to bank some energy for later on. I think Envision and Robin did it to uh, extremists, let's say, because you have to keep 10 car lengths behind um, uh, the, 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 um, the following car in in a safety car situation. But, you know, Robin was Robin might as well have started that race in Imola, to be honest with you. He was, <laughs> he was that far behind. Um, I don't know what was decided. Um but he did get penalised for it, and um, it was just, yeah, I, I, he was miles away from um, the following pack and, and created, I, don't, I can't remember what the gap was, unfortunately, but it was a significant gap. I mean, one of the knock-ons of that, of course, was that Oliver Turvey was waiting to start the race from the pit exit, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and it severely compromised him, because if that hadn't have occurred, I think Turvey could have had a sniff of the points. You know, he, he had good race pace but he got severely shafted by um a few uh games going on shall we say and robin franz wasn't the only one but he was the one who who stood out in, in creating a huge gap now when the race finally did get underway we had nick cassidy on pole for the first time but he didn't get to lead for very long and binned it in quite an embarrassing way at the first breaking point yeah i'll tell you what that reminded me of it reminded me of mortara at Hong Kong in 2017. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. On that last yeah. lap, or penultimate, penultimate lap, perhaps. It was. It looked very similar. Immediate snap. Just snapped completely on him. Um, he said on his Pits Car Radio with his engineer, Stephen Lane, that he'd, he'd just, just lightly dabbed the brakes. And, of course, what you got to remember is that at that stage of the race, they're mechanical braking, right? So there's there's no um, there's no activation of the the full electric system at that stage because there's there's no regen that has been accrued. So it was it was a curious one. It, they're going to investigate exactly what happened, but from Cassidy's point of view, he initially thought that there was an issue, but it wouldn't surprise me if he just um, uh, as as a, as a rookie informer, he just got caught out. Um, it was downhill, um, but it again, it's it's hard to apportion blame until we know exactly what happened. But um, yeah. yeah, Felix Rosenqvist did it, didn't he, in Hong Kong in, I think, 2018. I can't remember the exact year. A similar thing. So he's not the first to do it, but obviously it's all exaggerated, isn't it? Because he's leading the field and he's done such a great job in in uh, qualifying the Super Bowl. So a real a real tough one for him. They gathered it up and rejoined pretty quickly, but it wasn't a great race from there on in either, was it? You know, he got it, got himself involved in quite a lot of argy bargy. Yeah, and he, um, he he's had a fair few contacts. Race one on Saturday, he had a he sort of had a skirmish with Jake Dennis and got penalised. He had some contact in Derea as well. I mean, it's part and parcel of Formula E, but you've, like I said about Norman Nato earlier, you know, he is a fellow rookie. He hasn't shown the same pace as DeGrasse, uh, sorry, as Cassidy, and the same promise. But he is accruing a lot of knowledge, and um, he's keeping his nose clean. Uh, Cassidy isn't, but I think, yeah, the incident with Roland. I think Oliver was, although he has he's protested that he was harshly done by. I think, I think Roland really. Um, was was at fault on that one. Again, you could argue it was a racing a racing incident, and to be honest, I, I, I think it possibly was. But the steward saw it differently. 
that compromised. Cassidy got a puncture. He de- he didn't give up. You know, he 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 kept on it, but ultimately didn't finish the race. Um, pulled off late in the race, and and that was that. But you know, there's going to be much more to come from him and Envision Virgin in the future because he's he's taken to Fort Marie like a duck to water. Yeah, I think all the signs are, are very encouraging, and and these little bits will will be ironed out. And just to prove it's not just a rookie thing, the two of the most experienced drivers on the grid. I mean, I, I know Boemi missed those two races when he had a, a clash, but effectively ever presence him and uh, Lucas Degrassi proceeded to tangle on the straight, putting Degrassi in the wall, and then in uh, Boemi a bit of a penalty. So, how did you see that one? Um, from my personal point of view. I just don't like weaving on the straights, you know. If a guy's got a run on the inside of you, you just have to let it go. You can contest the braking zones, but you can't weave on a straight. Yeah, initially, I I completely agreed. And it's difficult because the the only camera angle we really saw was either on board or from the rear, the rear facing, sorry, from the the rear, so from a camera looking back at it. Um, I just spoke to Sebastian, actually. Had a chat with him this morning. You'll be able to read that on... Uh, the hyphen race dot dot com on uh, on Monday afternoon. It was it was a curious one. So Buemi was in attack mode and was much the quicker uh, car. Obviously, as they came up the hill, there. Ironically, again, the place where Degrassi's race had ended on the Saturday, he went to the inside. Degrassi seemed to defend late, um, so went to the inside. Buemi was much quicker. Then, obviously, switched to the to the right to have a go around the outside. Um, but then Sebastian told me that Degrassi had a slight lift. Um, not sure why that would be occurring at that stage of the track, but apparently that was proven on, on data. Um, and uh, and the impact took, took place, obviously, at that speed and that angle. It doesn't take much for the uh, the car in the, the head of it, uh, the head of the incident, to spear off into the wall. And that's exactly... What happened? Degrassi was furious, um, was pretty pointed in his remarks after the race. But from Buemi's point of view, I think there are two things. One is, you know, why was why was there a lift there? And the other one is, well, yeah, you're right. You know, moving moving around on the straight when you know that there's a car with attack mode behind you that's going to be quicker. Um, and and again, early in the race, so similar to the Lotterer Van Dorn incident, or not quite as early, but you know, I think there was only sort of 10 or 11 minutes gone in the race and um, both of their races were compromised because Buemi to his surprise and, and to be honest to to some surprise to, to me certainly got pinged for that and got two points on his license and a and a time penalty which pus- pushed him out of the out of the points again going back to your point earlier V2B about there having to be blame apportioned you could have a really strong argument that that was a, a racing incident. Some will, some will, some have blamed Degrassi for those moves. He has made moves defensive and offensive in the past that have been very uh, aggressive. We know that, and there has been conflict. well, and those two have perhaps the ultimate history as well, don't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, we need to do an equivalent of bring back V tens to pick the bones out of that one, don't we, for Formula <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know you bring back Battersea. <laughs> you can read all about it in my new book, VDB. Have I mentioned I've done a book? I don't know if I have a book. No, but thank you very much for getting that plug in right now. And um, you know, when when will it be available at all good high street retailers now that they're opening on the uh, you know if they're an essential business? <laughs> May the thirteenth. Well you asked. You asked. Now um 
yes, they have history, but actually, you know, taking that apart and taking all the the incidents of of uh, slightly bellicose offensive and defensive moves aside, because let's judge it on this incident. We, we the viewer, didn't see enough. Um, the stewards do see enough. They do have the data, and they decreed that that Buemi was at fault for that accident. So we, you know, you got to take that at face value. But having spoken to Buemi and having heard what Degrassi made of it, um, I would I would perhaps put that in the bracket of a racing incident, as in one driver had more power and was quicker, um, and it's a narrow part of the track and. Uh, the contact was was definitely unavoidable, but uh, yeah, well, it's um, it's happened, it's done, and um, both missed out, unfortunately. So after the uh, inevitable safety car period at the restart, we saw a, a classic bit of opportunism opportunism from Alex Sims, who uh, pulled a nice uh, apprehensive move, uh, who pulled a nice move on Pascal Verline to um, to bag himself a podium place. Yeah, it was tasty, wasn't it? I mean, I I reckon we should call Simsy the artful dodger from now on for picking uh, <laughs> picking pockets or two. Uh, superb opportunist move. Um, you got to presume that Verline was either asleep or, or just didn't get precise info from his side of the garage on, on where and when the restart would happen. Uh, you know, I I seem to recall him actually saying something about him seeing a yellow pounce on his dash or being told I don't know, but you know it uh, it didn't it didn't look great and and Sims didn't need a, a second invitation. So um, yeah, it, it, ironically for Sims and Mahindra, it was it was one of very few moves to get him from um, from I think he started P six to to P two. So drove a lovely race, very serene, mm. very accomplished, sort of you know proper. Proper Prost like uh, Allah, not Nico. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he it was definitely more um, more Foxtrot than Waltz, wasn't it? Eh? With with Sims's recent uh, efforts on the oh, very good. I see what you've done there. Yeah, you know, to throw that one in. So he did a little podium shimmy as well, didn't he? I don't know if you saw that to celebrate. <laughs> yeah. Quite amusing. So uh, it's clearly had a lasting impact on him. Yeah, it was a really funny story afterwards. Actually, I spoke to him shortly after the race, and uh, when he crossed the finish line. He was looking at his dash. Obviously, we had that one lap shootout. He was looking at his dashboard, so he missed seeing the checkered flag. And at that precise moment, his engineer told him there was one more lap to go. Mistakenly, very briefly. So he um, he had a yeah he he had a bit of a a palpitation, let's say, because he knew that he didn't have many kilowatts uh, kilowatts to go. So, uh, but that lasted just a few seconds. But it was it was an amusing aside to a what was a really fine drive from him and, and Mahindra. They clearly went on the ball as the uh, Rocket Venturi guys, because Nato crossed the line on like literally naught point naught as he went over the over, past the flag. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. There was some miscalculation went there, wasn't there? There was, I think, there was eleven. Was it eleven kilowatt uh, kilowatt hours were taken off because of the the, the caution periods and safety cars? It's probably just a little bit of bit of maths issue there, and uh, yeah, really unfortunate for for Norman because he deserved he deserved that podium. He drove a great race and backed up what he'd done in qualifying. So yeah, he could feel aggrieved on that one. Such a shame. He deserved a lot more from that race. He did. I thought I thought he'd um, put down a real mark, and it was good to see that team with some sort of genuine race pace. Um, talking of which, um, 
Verline's race was pretty unremarkable, really. A Porsche got a bit of an en- energy management issue again. They seem to have really solid qualifying pace, but nothing too exciting for them in the race. It appears so, doesn't it? Disappointing. They, they flattered to deceive a bit, a fair bit, I thought, over the whole weekend. Qual- qualifying pace was strong from both Lotterer and Verline on Saturday, and, and Verline particularly on Sunday, but it, it just didn't quite work out in the race again. We saw it in Duria. They can't sustain... The, the pace. So it, it, it's presumed that it is a, an energy management issue and um, Verline certainly alluded to that a little bit in his in his pits car radio and in his post-race interviews. I, I thought he was excellent actually. I thought he was terrific all weekend and he's the only driver to have scored points in all the races this season. So it's, it's a fine start to his Porsche career. But you know, Porsche aren't rookies anymore. And they are one of the bigger teams and they have great resources and they have a healthy budget. So the slack that was cut them is is not there anymore. They've got to offer a bit more. Uh, they know that, you know, they know they have to and I'm sure they will. But they've got uh, they've got quite a lot of work to do. During the races where there weren't masses amounts of overtaking, one guy who seemed to be pulling off some great moves was Rene Rast, only for his race to end in the wall as well. Yes, yeah, he had a great Saturday actually, made up bucket loads of positions uh, from P20 on the grid to get uh, six at the at the chequered flag. Looked to be doing the same on Sunday, although progress was a bit harder going uh, in Sunday's race. He got up to P11, looked like he was going to get um, a few points and, and actually with others' penalties possibly could have got sort of P7, P8. But he, he glanced a wall just at the wrong time, broke a, broke a wishbone and it sent him spearing into the wall uh, just before turn four. So, yeah, eight points from the weekend for Audi is disastrous. Let's, you know, let's not put any sheen on it. It's a disaster to come away from that when they had two quick cars with just eight points. But they'll regroup quickly. Next month it will be two years, as I mentioned, that they since they've won a race, and that'll be playing on Alan McNish's mind because I, I, I can tell you pretty clearly that Alan McNish does not like losing one little bit. You know, he's uh, he he he'll be he'll be getting hungrier as as the drivers will. But the good news is, the positive news is, they've got a quick car and the pace is strong. So I think there's some good times ahead for for the team that will be waving goodbye to Formula E um, this summer. So yeah, again the race ended with a with a bit of a crash. This time involving uh, Bird, Nick De Vries, and Oliver Rowland. Um, how how did you see that? It's a classic case of three into one simply doesn't go. Yes, ish. Um, you know, De Vries, De Vries was certainly a fault for it. He he got a run on Bird goat coming into the the turn seven left hander really tight, uh, but he he just got a wobble under braking, wobbled under braking, contacted Bird. They kind of became interlocked not interlocked but they you know they were rubbing on each other and then they managed to wipe out Roland a little bit as well for for good measure so yeah a bit of a bit of a slam dunk for De Vries there um sad for Bird you know he could have extended his championship points advantage in that one but just just too ambitious from the Mercedes driver but did did you see I don't know if people noticed but just above the Mortara in fourth had the mother and father of moments under breaking. You go back if you've not seen it, go back and watch it. He got oh, it's unbelievable. So he's defending from Gunter and he just has this epic sort of double tank slapper thing going on. I, I I've got no idea, and I'm sure he hasn't on how he saved it. He he went full on Bruce Grobelar, nineteen eighty five spec. 
<laughs> you know, if, if you're under 40, let me tell you, Bruce Grobelow was this slightly nutty madcap goalkeeper for Liverpool who either made incredible mind-boggling saves or outrageous howlers and you know Mortara was just on the right side of making an incredible save it was extraordinary go and watch it it's you know there there is no there is no adequate sort of um physics explanation on how he didn't keep that out the wall well as you say um Sam Bird still in the lead of the championship from his teammate um so it's a Jaguar 1-2 but the pace of Van Dorn and that Mercedes does look ominous doesn't it it does, yeah. Yeah, I think we said in the preview show uh, before the start of the season that, that Jags would be slow starters, and I've been proved absolutely 100% wrong. Um, <laughs> I feel a bit embarrassed <laughs> about that, but have publicly uh, apologised. Jags have had a fantastic start, and they, they look real title contenders. Obviously, it's still a long way to go. The Drivers' Championship will be like this all season in terms of how close it is. I reckon they're at least... 75% of the grid can win a race on any given day. Probably 50% can be genuine title contenders. If the title doesn't go down to the wire, wherever that may be, with without at least two or three having a real chance, I'll be very surprised. Oh, I'll be I'll be astonished. Yeah. Mercedes looking looking ominous, as you said. I think they have ever so slightly the best all-round package at the moment. When they're running clean, those silver arrows are yeah, they, they, they've got an advantage. They won't admit it publicly, but they are very confident they can win it this year. And so they should be. They've mm. got, you know, let's not beat about the bush. They've got the biggest budget in Formula E. They've got the best when they've got some really strong resources in UK and Germany. Toto Wolf was there at the weekend and will no doubt have been overseeing a few conversations on Gen 3 and what might happen with that with team principal Ian James too. I mean, let's face it, they aren't going to leave Fulnery anytime soon, I don't think. So expect them to iron out whatever issues there are with committing to the future. And uh, obviously, hopefully you can read about that on, on the race very soon. Now, you mentioned there that it's still not really clear where the championship's going to finish. What's the latest on the calendar? Well, we were expecting an announcement on where the calendar may, uh, may finish uh, with the final races, but that hasn't come yet, uh, which indicates there are, there, are, there are issues and there are. We, we expect Santiago to be, unfortunately, cancelled. There, there's a lot of... Uh, infect, the infection rates aren't good in, in Chile, although their vaccination programme, ironically, is, is very good at the moment. And obviously, it's going into winter in Chile, South America, at present. I don't expect a race to be held there. Um, we, we broke a story last week about the Puebla circuit that hosted World Touring Car Races in the uh, last decade to be a potential replacement for the Hermanos Rodriguez, which is currently a medical facility uh, around the pandemic. So I wouldn't be surprised if we go to Puebla. New York will become a double header, uh, And London, obviously, the big hope is that London will be set for ju- at the end of July. And all the indications are that we will be at Excel at the end of July. And then it's really a case of whether um, when the Tempelhof races can take place and potentially... Uh, potentially Marrakesh could be reassigned for for later in the year to finish the season off, uh, but you know this is all this is all speculative or informed speculative speculation to some extent. But that's how things seem to be at the minute. So, uh, but what we do know is we're going to Valencia um, next weekend or weekend after next, and uh, we're off to Monaco in early May. So, looking forward to those. 
Yeah, I'm particularly looking forward to Valencia. I mean, I know that they've tested there extensively in the past, but this will be the first race that's taken place on a genuine purpose-built circuit. So um, is that? do you think that's going to you know, change the competitive order a little bit? It'll certainly change the, the, the dynamics of the racing, not having the walls right up next to them. Well, that's that's the point, isn't it? A lot's going to depend on if the FIA and Formula E can use some walls to some extent. You know, the walls are or can be made available and, and can can be used there. But there's a lot of intricate circuit homologation work that has to be done. Obviously, safety is the key feature of that. So, you know, whether whether they can change a permanent circuit into a pseudo street circuit is is unknown at this stage. Um, a part of me wishes and hopes they will, because I think if they don't, you have got lots of potential issues around, obviously, track limits is, is the key one. Uh, but just the, the, the visual, just the optics of it, you know, I, 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 listen, you know, we all know that Formula E isn't the quickest of, of championships, but it's not about outright speed. You know, we're going to go to Monaco. They're using the full Monaco track in May. We're going to go to Monaco, and some people are worried about the, the differential or the comparison with F1. I mean, just forget it. You know, it's going to be 25, 30 seconds slower. I mean, it, it is, you know, it's like it, it's like comparing you know, international football to national football. There is just no comparison. It's a completely different thing. So... But going back to Valencia, I, I think we will see some some interesting cameos, let's say. Porsche were very quick there in the testing. But again, there were so many different things and different programs happening at testing. And there are circuit modifications to what they were running that day back in November. It's, it's, it's impossible to tell. I think uh, making any predictions is just not. Not, not relevant. So we're just going to have to wait and see what they do with the track. One thing we do know is that they're going to have a chicane on the straight, which will see a good few episodes of Bedlam, I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's there's going to be that. And I, I, I just hope that they can, um, I just hope that they can get a circuit which which does bring some of the challenge that, that we see, uh, that we saw in Rome, you know, I mean, lots, lots that happened in Rome was, was, was exciting and, you know, grabs the headlines, doesn't it? And uh, I, Formula E more often than not provides that. So the hope is that they can do that. It's a big test because I think potentially they may have to use some, some other permanent circuits uh, this year or next year. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. So there'll be a lot of evidence gathering on, on how it goes. Yeah, it's definitely going to be intriguing. Um, and I, yeah, I can't wait to see what happens too. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Remember to check the-race.com for all the latest Formula E news or follow us at We Are The Race on your social platform of choice. Don't try TikTok. We're not on there. I don't think we're going to be. Um, also, why not check out our brand new IndyCar podcast hosted by the races Jack Benyon with IndyCar veteran J.R. Hildebrand. We've just launched the first one. We'll be doing one of those after every single race. It's going to be great. So thank you very much and goodbye.